Marks, and this is a special shelter-in-place edition of GrottoPod. Today's episode was recorded at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco on February 20th, 2020, back when we probably should have been practicing social distancing, but weren't. On that day, I interviewed my colleagues at Collectors Weekly, Lisa Hicks and Hunter Oatman Stanford, about what makes a great Collectors Weekly story. This intro and the credits at the end of this episode were recorded at my home on March 25th, 2020, using an iPhone, which hopefully explains the difference in audio quality. Enjoy. So welcome. We're here in this excuse for a studio that's barely the size of a broom closet. (laughs) Lisa, tell me what you think makes a great Collector's Weekly story. So I think an important aspect of all of our stories that connect with people is that we look at vintage antiques, vintage items, pieces of history, and we connect those with topics people care about today. So it could be connected to politics, could be connected to trends, um, memes that are being passed around on social media, or um, just very human fears and desires that were humans had back in the past and they still have today. So it's not just a an entry in an encyclopedia telling the story of something that happened a long time ago. It's the relevance to today. Yes, absolutely. That I think some people look at antiques and they look at them as things that are trapped in the past or artifacts of the past, right. when in fact these antiques have something to tell us about where we are right now today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there an example of a story that you've written that you you think fits that bill? One of the stories I always point people to is the history of black dolls because I'm not someone who ever liked dolls, not as a girl, never been a fan of dolls, but the story about black dolls in the United States and manufactured black dolls specifically really tells us a lot about our culture and the toys children play with, the biases, how we perceive beauty, and the fact that even today, the manufacturers don't make that many black dolls. And so that's a story that tells us a lot about America, even if, the, if, even if you're not interested in dolls at all. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of comments on that story. That, that one resonated with a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. And as you said, you know, you, you, can, you said there's not a lot of this, lot, not a lot of black dolls being made today, but even Barbie has, you know, tried to expand what it's doing, partly in response, not to our article, I'm not suggesting, but partly in response to the, the lack of material. You know, I do believe, um, and since I've written that piece, and again, I don't think Mattel necessarily read my piece, but that there's been a cultural shift where uh, Mattel is starting to want to do more inclusive kind of Barbies. Mm-hmm. And again, that's that's something that that we're looking at objects as a kind of a cultural anthropologist and saying, oh, yeah, this is a shift in our culture marked through the manufacture of dolls. Mm-hmm. Right. Hunter, you were going to say something. Well, I also think that while the, the antiques or the objects are the through line and the connection through our body of work, that they also are a jumping off point for, you know, diving into these deeper so- social questions or trends or historical moments that people may not know anything about. I was just thinking about one example was the, the piece I did about smell, about scent, 
And the, it started from me looking at some deodorant tins from like the 1920s and being like, what, like, when did deodorant, you know, become common? And, and then going back from there and being like, when did people start using, you know, creating artificial scents and what did they use them for? And, you know, expanding from there. So mm -hmm. I think, I think we do that a lot where we have, we see some object that we think is interesting and cool and think like, I'm, I don't know the answer to this question. So let's just keep looking for it. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to get another example of, and this is more about memes, and we've talked about this a lot because mm -hmm. this was a big hit for us. There was a meme going around with this ugly couch, and the meme said, everyone's grandparents had this couch. Everyone's. And I looked at the meme, and I said, you know what? My grandmother did have that couch. Right. <laughs> I'm familiar <laughs> with this couch. And then I thought, this is such a strange couch. Everyone knows it, but where did it come from? And I think the great thing about Collectors Weekly is that it's not just we're passing around a meme that everyone's passing around that's been recycled. We're looking at it and we're saying, well, no, but what, what is this? And that's what I tried to do with that story is I tried to figure out, okay, can I nail down where exactly this, this couch came from? I found uh, someone who specializes in mid-century modern, sort of the conservative side, not mid-century modern, but mid-century conservative fashion and renovations. and was able to explore, well, this is probably the place in um, American culture where this was sold at department stores and in Sears catalogs, mm -hmm. and this is why these colors, these orange and browns, and these kind of Western themes that were on this couch, and this kind of velour, plasticky kind of fabric, where, where all of it came from and kind of pinpointed the 70s, even though we didn't find the exact maker. But people found that really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, it's literally what are what are you looking at when you look at one of these couches? Mm -hmm. Right. Where'd it come from? Yeah. 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 And, and like taking something that's really familiar, and then providing the context and the background information. You know, a lot of these the stories we do are are things that people have seen before. Like the I was thinking the one on uh, the beauty patches. So it's about beauty marks, which is like everyone knows what a beauty mark is, but going deeper than most publications would and finding out like who came up with the idea for this couch or why did it become popular. Yeah, and I thought that beauty marks story was really interesting because you're looking at connections to like skin problems and, and mm -hmm. diseases, right? And yeah, like physical health, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was also connected, if I'm remembering right, to um, sexually transmitted diseases? Or yeah, I mean, it was, it was like so many different elements from that period. I'm, I'm you know, not going to recall all the details, but there was like definitely people had, you know, syphilis was much more common, certain kinds of rashes and, and skin problems that they didn't know how to cure, as well as like battle scars, like wounds from war. And so it became really popular to cover them up with these, you know, very fake, obviously not natural beauty marks such that people started cutting them into shapes and, you know, making them like a way to decorate your face. And, and people started applying them even when they didn't have anything to cover up. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a brief trend that is, you know, very different than the way we think of beauty marks today, but something that, you know, almost nobody knew about. And so it was really interesting to sort of dive into that tiny little period where this was popular. Yeah. So what do we say to readers who look at us and go, oh, Collectors Weekly, I just want to know how much something costs and whether <laughs> it's going to be valuable tomorrow and whether I can sell it and put my kids through college and, you know, all that kind of transactional stuff around 
collecting. I mean, we we really don't do that very much, do we? No, but I think I mean I think there's a million both print and online places that do that. That that's their you know their goal, and so we don't we wouldn't be adding much to the conversation by just providing another you know valuation site or another you know listing with a bunch of dates. We often rely on those for you know when we're doing research and they're they're helpful to sort of to look at the the larger field for a certain type of object, but we're the place you would come if you really want to know the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about in the past how value books or the collector's books exist for a temporary a short period of time. Like their mm-hmm. their numbers are changing often quickly enough that by the time it's published, those aren't necessarily accurate anymore. So we're doing a lot of articles that I think are evergreen where people can come back and mm-hmm. read the story and learn something about history that's that's going to be true regardless. Yeah, so you know, that material goes out of date and I would argue that its worst offense is that it's boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, there's definitely an audience for that. I mean, that's why Antiques Roadshow is so popular. I mean, there's a fantasy that you're going to go into your attic and you're going to find something that's worth a lot of money and it's going to get you out of the financial crisis you're having. Right, that's true. Um, Everyone has a treasure fantasy, right? That's why people, they have the metal detectors and they're looking for treasures in parks and beaches. And so I think that that's a real, you know, human desire. But I think that would be, that itself would be more of an interesting story to me than actually talking about, you know, an amazing treasure. And mm-hmm. I know, Ben, you've done some stories about people finding treasures. I guess I have, and yeah. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes those are fun, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, like the the people who found all those print blocks mm-hmm. um, from the Hollywood advertising uh, newspaper ads. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether they're worth millions or not is sort of another question. But um, it was definitely a discovery. Of yeah. the cache of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we also reach out to the experts and the collectors and the obsessives, you know, who have all this knowledge that we don't, um, so that we can get their perspectives on certain topics. And often I would say that the collections or the people we talk to have these objects that aren't really worth a lot of money, but they it's so specific and such, a, you know, sort of a unique set of items that it, it's just fascinating to hear why they care about them or, you know, what's what drove them to compile, you know, 10,000 matchbooks or... Yeah, or like Lisa's relationship with the Thames, who you did an article on their small collection of fake barf. Right. Yeah, yeah, the Stan and Marty Tim, right. whom I'm writing another article about. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have an amazing collection of all these novelties, and a lot of those are pranks and gags and I mean those things are just inherently interesting like when Marty talks about going to the Fun Inc. factory in Chicago where they're curing thousands of fake vomit patties and it looks like cookies laid out on cookie sheets in these skylights I mean that's just an incredible image How can you not love that? Yeah, and you could probably go on eBay, and I don't know what these things are worth. Marty's told me I should know, but I I can't imagine it's worth more than $20. Like, you could probably get, these are mass-produced, you could probably get a fake vomit patty pretty easily. But it's just the story of being so interested that you go to Fun Inc. and you actually see these things being made, 
and you're not just collecting the fake vomit, but also the snakes that pop out of the cans and the, you know, fake dog poop. There's just all these things that are just part of that culture. And that brings me to another point I'd like to make is that something I talked about at another publication that I worked for that I just think is a really good rule of thumb for any article, particularly articles you're putting on the internet and you're hoping people will read, is that you have to think about what people, how people are gonna react. And if their first reaction is, huh, that's not something they're gonna click on. They might just scan the headline and walk away. But if it makes them go, wow, and they have to read that and they have to know, like, what, what is the story? Like, can you explain to me how fake vomit is made? <laughs> you know? Right. So the topic has to be wow. But I think we've tried s- to stay away from clickbaity headlines just as a rule, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, to some extent, I think everyone in the media today has to hook people with a headline. And the question is, is it, are you doing so in an ethical way, are you prom- is, your, is your headline delivering, is your story going to deliver on the promise of your headline? Right. Or are you just using cheap tricks to get people to, to click on your article? And we want people to read our story and we want them to be satisfied. So we've got to come up with a story that delivers on a great headline. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's really important. Although I freely admit that I haven't been above the occasional cheap trick. <laughs> <laughs> But our content, we are, we're always proud of our content, right? Like yeah. That's, yeah, that's, I we, think so. We, we want people to feel like it was worth it to come to Collectors Weekly, that the click paid off. So we're never trying to bring them in and say, oh, we got you, and now you've got a bug on your computer. <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> I'd also like to add something to what Hunter said about the beauty patches and what you said about the couch. And, and that is that in addition to the actual story of where the item came from or what its history is, I think that objects tell us a lot about time mm-hmm. and, you know, moments in history. And I, and I know that's implicit in what you were both saying, but it's like, um, like I was thinking about the piece I wrote about the charlatans who were, uh, you know, the earliest rock band in, in this psychedelic era of San Francisco. And their kind of rise and pretty quick fall tells you a lot about what was going on in the scene at the time, independent of the specifics of their story, which I happen to think are also really interesting. Mm -hmm. But it also kind of gives you this sort of window on um, what life was like in 1965 if you were still reeling from seeing the Beatles on TV a year before and thinking, I want to do that. You know, kind of how do you get to doing that? And so their story has its own specifics, but a lot of people were wanting to be the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And and so their their story is at once unique. It's, It's at once kind of broader than that. And for me, as a writer at Collectors Weekly, those are, the art, those are the stories that I find myself gravitating to, the ones that kind of put us back in a moment in time a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think something we do well is that when we're looking at, I think there are a lot of periods of times in history that people tend to romanticize. And it, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I know a lot of young people who just want to live in the future or the present, but then there's a lot of movements to be attached to the Victorian era or the Roaring Twenties or the Sixties and there's a, there's the kind of swinging Sixties and then there's the psychedelic Sixties, right? 
and our, the hippie movement. And what I think is really valuable that we can contribute is to, is to give people more of a grounding perspective of like, this is what these periods were actually like. We have our concepts and our fantasy parties, mm-hmm. but really these are the things people experience. These are their motivations and making those more real and also something we can connect to because all of these stories are still true and human and complicated. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something really valuable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, I would, would also echo what Ben was saying about the, the sort of window in time and take it a bit further and say that some of our most successful pieces have really been about this sort of voyeuristic you know, sort of like looking back at a, almost like a time capsule mm-hmm. and certain objects that help capture a moment in a way that people may have not understood it before. You know, right. like you were saying, it sort of corrects the record in a sense. And, and it was reminding me a bit of the, you know, one of the articles that we've had with the most traffic over is it a all time. Two million hits? Is that <laughs> something <laughs> that like it that. reached? I, don't need, I haven't even checked. <laughs> two million that. unique page views. But it's the, <laughs> it was the you know abandoned suitcases article. Maybe I'll just read the, the first graph. Okay. Um, because I think it's we did a pretty good job of a hook on this. And it sort of shows how much there's this like desire to sort of peek into the window of other people's lives in the past and like sort of understand what they what they were feeling and their motivations so it starts out if you were committed to a psychiatric institution unsure if you'd ever return to the life you knew before what would you take with you that sobering question hovers like an apparition over each of the willard asylum suitcases from the 1910s through the 1960s many patients at the willard asylum for the chronic insane left suitcases behind when they passed away, with nobody to claim them. Upon the center's closure in 1995, employees found hundreds of these time capsules stored in a locked attic. Working with the New York State Museum, former Willard staffers were able to preserve the hidden cache of luggage as part of the museum's permanent collection. And then it goes on to explain that photographer has recently been, you know, documenting each of the suitcases, and we've spoken with him, and you see these, you know, these images with basically every object that one person owned in a suitcase and a little description about them from what little we know looking backward. And I think it really, both the, you know, the imagery is incredibly compelling, but the window into, you know, the the world of mental health care and sort of the treatment of people who were different is really fascinating. People, you know, took to the story very quickly. And the starting point, of course, is just this object Mm -hmm. a suitcase and the stuff that's in them Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah what what struck me about that story was that possibly some of the people in the asylum were actually suffering from real mental illnesses Mm -hmm. and then some of them were sent there because they were different they were gay they were breaking like cultural mores in some ways but they weren't necessarily mentally ill right and kind of being removed from their homes or everything they know they knew and what do you do in that situation? What do you bring with you? If you only have one suitcase, mm-hmm. what do you take? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's in- incredibly revealing in some ways, like if you had to, you know, pare down. Yeah, and the, heart, the, the real heartbreaking part of those suitcases for me is the, the idea that these people didn't understand that they weren't going to leave. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, they pack stuff as if 
they would need it when they got out. And so, right. you know, looking at that, it, it stops you mm-hmm. pretty, pretty hard. Yeah. Or at least it did for me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But we've done several pieces that have sort of a similar quality, I think. Lisa did the one about the, the artifacts of broken relationships. Yes. It's like a museum on discarded <laughs> objects that people no longer want because they have their failed relationships. And then just recently I did the story about the um, children's notebooks archive, which is like, you know, kids writing in, in the first person about uh, for school assignments or whatever. So Yeah, like the, like the lesson book Jojo Rabbit had mm-hmm. and did all those drawings in in the movie. Right. (laughs) But yeah, so these little, these little like glimpses of people's interior lives, I think are really compelling to readers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my most popular stories, and this was our very, we had a very clever clickbaity headline. Um, Valentine's Day has just passed pretty recently. (laughs) Oh, happy Valentine's Day. I hate you. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That was a good headline. I thought. I think it's a great headline. And I think what it went to me, is the hook of the story that I think people really connect to is that there's a lot of hand-wringing these days about the state of social media and online trolls and people having the power to attack people anonymously through comments and tweets. And I think part of the pearl clutching or the worries is that people have gotten worse, maybe. (laughs) That, um... We think, oh, this you know technology is ruining us and it's bringing out our worst demons. And you know what's so interesting to me about these is to realize that people have been sending each other terrible anonymous notes for as long as there's been paper, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a story that's about a type of Valentine that you know we tend to think of Valentines as being love notes and if they're not love notes there's they're um the little cards you had to give everyone in your school class because you had to be fair back in the day people sent on Valentine's Day weren't just sending notes to people they loved or to their grandmother they were sending notes to people they disliked right and these were um illustrations usually with um a little poem and they were sent between the 1840s and the 1940s And so I can read a little bit of the piece I wrote. Sure, please. So, with all the hand-wringing over anonymous commenters and social media trolls, you'd think the Internet is to blame for all the woes of humanity. After all, what could people do with their ugly, mean thoughts before they had Yelp, Reddit, or Tumblr to help broadcast them? But as far back as the 1840s until the 1940s, they could send them in a vinegar valentine. Yes, that's right. For almost as long as Valentine's Day has been an insufferably sappy day celebrating romantic love, it's also been a day for telling everyone else exactly how much you don't love them with an anonymous poem sent via post. At first, it's easy to demonize the senders as the worst of trolls or bullies. I mean, some of the most horrifying vinegar valentines actually suggest the recipient kill him or herself. But then, on the other hand, if you look at the more lighthearted Valentines, some of them start to seem like a good idea. Have you ever had a haughty sales lady scoff at you for being poor? Have you ever had to listen to a pompous windbag carry on when he doesn't have any idea what he's talking about? So many people are blithely unaware of their obnoxious behavior. 
Wouldn't it feel great to tell them off consequence-free? <laughs> that reminds me of one of the things I think is so appealing about that story is it's the specificity of the the valentines that there there's like one for your secretary that's annoying you there's one for the bald guy there's one for the surgeon they're like all these really targeted sort of <laughs> assaults on people i mean there's the guy who's wolf whistling at you while you're yeah, walking down the yeah. street you know and there's the, the woman who's playing piano loudly and singing badly right <laughs> but it's like any almost anybody can relate to like disliking one of these these characters and I think that's something that that we try to do with almost all our stories is make the pat people in the past feel relatable right like like you could imagine yourself you know living in that period and feeling like oh instead of sending a text to this person I'm just <laughs> to send them a vinegar valentine well you know and also part of these on the one hand like you said there's a lot of bad behavior that people you know engage in that you would like them to stop but then there's also this it also was a reinforcement of the status quo. Mm -hmm. So they, they they went after suffragettes and they went after unmarried women. Unmarried or, women or, yeah. or men that weren't behaving manly enough. Punching down. It was punching down. Yeah. A lot of them. Yeah. 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 As, the, as the culture likes. We love to punch down. It yeah. always works. I was going to say one more thing about the object, you know, opening this window into a, a time period that we don't know much about and you know the vinegar valentines it made me think of this because of the the sort of connections to modern communication and the way we like to anonymously assault people <laughs> online but there uh, one of the earliest stories that I did for collectors weekly was somebody had I think he had like a collection of miniature canoes or something and wanted us to write about it Some, somehow it was this this random canoe expert and I started talking to him and then he he like went off on this tangent about how canoes were like the first cars that they allowed young people to get away from their parents and to be on their own and to have this like level of independence so then I started looking into it and finding these articles this is from like the very early 20th century about people who you know the adults in charge were scandalized by the use of canoes in this way and how the the kids were like using these slang names for each of their canoes that sounded like you know like text lingo where it's like letters standing in for words and mm -hmm. it was just hilarious and I, I was looking back at some of the names of these canoes you know they're all like sort of lightly sexualized like kiss me quick you know all, with all k's in it or g the letter g i love you and squeeze me tight all one word you know right it's just like the same stuff that teenagers are doing now but uh you know online and, yeah. and then you see these photos of the kids like out at night in their canoes with their phonographs like instead of their jam box speakers or whatever it's just like so relatable in this way it's right yeah well, I, I think another thing we do, and we do well, is we are able to take a current trend and put it into context. And I, I, there's two stories that are coming to mind about that. And one mm -hmm. is that um, I did a story a while ago, um, and it was related to Urban Outfitters and some of these other places that were using Navajo designs. Mm -hmm. And I think there were also several designers who were using Pendleton patterns in their products, and sanctioned Pendleton pa patterns as well. And it was all about kind of the history of Pendleton, which is a company that is owned by, uh, has always been owned by white people, but 
they specifically went to Navajo and other tribes and asked them what designs they wanted mm -hmm. and sold these designs both to white Americans and to Native Americans. But I ha also had the opportunity to speak with Native American uh, fashion historians who talked about, well, why these Pendleton blankets became a part of their ceremonies and how it feels to have part of their culture be used for commercial purposes without um, giving any, you know, native designers money or credit mm -hmm. or things like that. So that's where a story where we took the kind of the whole history of this, these patterns and these designs and put it into the context of, you know, the commercialization that's happening right now. Right. And it's still happening, even though that story was written a while ago. And then another one was about how restaurants, even restaurants known for clutter, like TGI Fridays, are going toward the minimalist trend that's mm -hmm. been popular here in San Francisco for a while. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows this. Everyone's familiar with this, where you walk into a Taco Bell and suddenly it's a modernist Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's something people can, can connect to because they know about it. And a lot of people have memories of going to a TGI Fridays and seeing all the 10 signs and brass cash registers and all that sort of the Tiff Tiffany style lamps, all that clutter and asking, well, okay, so there used to be a lot of antique things or vintage things that were used to decorate these restaurants. And that was a thing in the seventies and eighties to decorate restaurants with antiques. And it says something like about what we value and how we value antiques that suddenly these things are considered um, trash and trashy and garbage and we want everything to be clean and having blank white walls like you have at blue bottle coffee shops. And that piece resonated with people because it, it connected to something that's happening right now, both the memories of our childhood and how all things have changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, and they're going after new customers and uh, if they alienate old ones, I suppose there's more new customers than previous customers. Well, to me, Statistically. What, what, what struck me about that is I was like, it was the piece that inspired it as I, as I saw that they had remodeled at TGI Fridays in Corpus Christi with blonde wood tables and minimalist decor. And then there's also the modernist or minimalist Taco Bell. And I thought, when this hits TGI Fridays in Corpus Christi, Texas, Taco Bell, it's over, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, time to sell your Eames chairs. Right. Well, not even Eames chairs. That's the interesting part to me. It's not... It, you know, when we were in Italy, we visited Italy, there was a lot of modernist design that was fun and bright and space-agey, but I feel like today it's more Spartan. Like, it's mm -hmm. like everything's open and empty and color-free. Yeah. And I think, well, that trend has got to be dying now because it's gone super mainstream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once fast food goes that way, then, yeah, it's not cool. You know, and I think we saw a couple of places that were, in a tasteful way, bringing back more of the, you Future. know, flourish, yeah. like the ornate decor you would have in the old TGI Fridays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess the cynic in me would say that the the trend is born of not wanting to interrupt transactions. Right. Well, and people talk about it's often, from the people I talked to talked about how part of the, the decor and the busyness of these restaurants was to keep you entertained while you waited for your food. Right. And now we can all look at our iPhones and play games or read mm -hmm social media. So the idea of having entertainment while you wait for food is, is um, going out of fashion. Right. Well, Hunter, did you have anything to add to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of entertainment, I'm going to just close by saying that um, 
you're all invited to use your phones to read stories at collectorsweekly.com. When you're waiting for your food. When you're waiting for your <laughs> coffee at Blue Bottle. You learn something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can find out why there's no art on the wall, I suppose. <laughs> so thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. And uh, we'll catch up again. All right. Great. Well, that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is concocted at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. It's produced by Susie Gerhardt, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, George Higgins, Andrew Brathwaite, and Rita Chang Epic. Music is by Sugartown. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ben Marks, and thanks for listening. <laughs>